When beginning a job in California, there are some state-mandated things that most even local employers have to make their employees go through. That is training, and this training has to do with like harassment and active shooters. But my favorite part of these trainings, which I've taken a number of times in the past past five to ten years as these things have been mandated is the hazardous materials section with some of the safety precautions and as I go through these I can't help but think of my son Elias who would love a particular symbol that that we always have to learn about the skull and the crossbones and I don't know if you know what this means if you see a, a, a big old barrel with a skull and crossbones on it it, it means not that you've run into a pirate camp. It means that you've run into something that will cause acute toxicity. That is severe and immediate toxic effects. You'll probably die if you run into it. Uh, so you're supposed to stay far away. And we understand intuitively that there is a, a distinction between the symbol on the thing and the thing itself. And yet one cannot be understood without the other. It points to a reality beyond itself, but is captured in the symbol. In the same way, we actually encounter what Stephen points out to us today, an extremely important symbol in the life of Israel and through the people. There is a turn in our text to another type, as it were, the last one that we'll really look at. That is the type of the tent. First point today is words, what, and why of the tabernacle. This will be 44 through 50. And the first thing that I want to just show you, I want to skim over really our text in 44 through 50. And I want to point out various different words because this symbol changes throughout the history of Israel a couple times. And it's called by many different names. And so I want you to be familiar with the language of the tabernacle, of the temple. Uh, This is the symbol that we'll be focused on today. As we have seen previously, all of these types have pointed forward to Christ. That's where he's going. So he's done that in the prophet imagery. He's done that in the king imagery of, of Joseph and Moses and the like. And now... This is the thing that's pointing forward to Christ, the tabernacle. In our text, beginning in verse 44, we see that this is called the tent of witness. And that's associated with the wilderness period of of Moses. And then it's on through all the way through the days of, of Joshua and beyond up until the point when David comes on the scene. So if you're, if you're in your Old Testament scriptures, this is beginning in Exodus. And this tent goes all the way through to 1 Kings where Solomon comes up and he particularly builds a dwelling place. <clears throat> but David, ass, is the one who asks to build. He is not granted that request. And dwelling place, though... It's not maybe so transparent here. The word, let me just tell you what underlines this because there's a, a theme in the words that are used. So tent is skene and dwelling place is skenoma. 
You hear the similarities between those. It's, they're built off the same root word. Dwelling place, tent. And another word that is used is to build a house for God. We know that Solomon, when what he builds is a house for God, as it were. But it's also known as a sanctuary. It's known as the temple. So there's many, many different words that are used. And in verse 48, one last final thing is, uh, it's not a dwelling that is handmade. It's not a house made by hands so as to dwell in. In the history of Israel, therefore, we have a, a prominent figure which takes various different forms and shapes throughout. But the symbol of the house, the tabernacle, the tent of witness, the tent of meeting, the dwelling place, many different names, is essentially the same. And this is what is a theme in scripture that Stephen wants to point out. And Stephen, in verse 44, before naming all these things and covering the history, already gives you his hand and shows you where he's going. In verse 44, he says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness and says about Moses, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which we, he had seen. So he is saying, essentially, the tent is a symbol of something greater. Moses saw the tabernacle in heaven, as it were. And what you see on earth is a symbol of that. There's really something going on there. It has historical meaning. It's actually God's dwelling place, but it's a symbol of God's dwelling place in the heavenlies. If you want to read more about that, follow your cross-references to Hebrews. I won't cover that all today, but... This is the pattern. There is the earthly reality and there's the heavenly one that it points to, points beyond itself. And you might look at this word in verse 44 and go, tent of witness, tent of witness. Maybe you're not so familiar with that one. uh, And you say, what is the tent of witness? Well, you know exactly what it is, but it might make you second guess yourself because It is the case that Stephen uses the terminology from the Septuagint. I've told you before that that's the Greek translation that's heavily quoted. The Isaiah text is directly from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And so here he uses the terminology of the Septuagint. Normally, when you read in your Old Testament in Exodus, you'll see tent of meeting. It's because it's a different word that's used from that in the Septuagint. So don't let it throw you off. I would encourage you all, if you don't have a Bible that you're willing to do that with in service today, to buy a Bible that you can write in. And one thing that I'd have you write in, right next to it in the margin, the tent of witness, this is the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the sanctuary. That's right. I might have to address my son in the middle of... We're not talking, Freddie. Freddie, look at me. All right, this is a parenting moment. Freddie, we're quiet right now, please. Thank you, sir. Now, what is this tent of meeting? It begins, its introduction is Exodus 25 through 
27. Those chapters, it also is chapter 33, chapter 36 through 38. Lots of, lots of words about what this is, 25 through 27, 33, 36 through 38. Lots on the tabernacle if you want to go study and see how it's set up and built. It is impactful and meaningful, and I'd love to get in all that, but obviously we don't have lots of hours to cover that on one sermon. I'll leave that to you. I, I am strictly, I told my wife, uh, who, who is at an ultrasound appointment right now, I told my wife how difficult it is to stay put in this text and to be very selective because there is so much going on here. There's so much history. There's so much that he's pulling in. I encourage you to read Isaiah 64 through 66. He is talking about the fulfillment of those things in this text, and and I don't have time to do that either. So this is a one-point sermon. If this helps you, it's a one-point sermon. What is the tabernacle? What's it mean? What's it point forward to? What is the substance of the thing? It is a symbol. So what's it look forward to? Well, first of all, <clears throat> what does it symbolize? This does come right in the very beginning in Exodus 25. Uh, Moses at that time uh, is commanded by the Lord to give the people a word that is, hey, if your heart moves you, bring the things that are needed. Bring your money, bring the different kinds of skins that are needed to cover this tent, bring the things to contribute to the building of this sanctuary for, for God. And in verse 8 and 9, it tells us transparently the whole meaning of the thing before it goes into all the details so that you don't get lost in the details. This is 20, Exodus 25, 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. So listen, he, he covers the same part. This is an image, earthly image of a heavenly reality. And you are to make it so that God might dwell in your midst. Hopefully you see the connection that the the purpose of the tabernacle and the symbol are one. So let me give you an example. If I had on my journal that I carry around, if I had went to a coffee shop and had the a symbol. I had a tabernacle on my journal and someone walks by and is like, hey, that's cool. What's that? I could say, oh, that's the Old Testament tabernacle. And they go like, what's that? And you know how we'd explain it? We just say what it means. It's the Old Testament place of worship where God dwelt in the midst of his people. And then I would go to preach Christ at that point. But that's what we have to see. How does Stephen want us to look forward and not miss the point? See, at this time, let me just remind you of what the high priest said. He said, are these things so? Specifically, the question that's being asked that the whole sermon's about is, uh, do you really preach that Jesus will destroy the temple, the tabernacle? the house of God, and change the customs of Moses. He simply could have said, yeah, that's my message. But he wants to show that this is the outflow of redemption. This is exactly 
the meaning. They, they have misunderstood the fundamental meaning of the tabernacle in the first place. They had made a serious mistake. They claimed to hold fast to Moses. They claimed to hold fast to the temple, yet they misunderstand what it means. They don't see how it points forward to the greater redemption of Christ Jesus. If you think this is small, you ought not to. It's a serious mistake. It is a damnable mistake. It is a mistake so big that it leads someone to hell. If you make it, the Jew in the day, while the temple was standing, had a choice to follow Christ and forsake the temple in the sacrificial system or to participate it and say functionally that the the temple is greater than Christ. It is the bigger reality. It is the thing that provides forgiveness of sins and following of those ceremonies. But when Christ comes, and well, as we'll see, he is the center of redemption. This is a mistake we ought not to make. And David misses the point. And what I want to do is to draw really our attention to verse 46, because this is the answer to to, to to the message what he is trying to communicate. And and some of you will have had the reading that I used in the text, and some of you will have the ESV's reading and a couple other translations, which will have a footnote. So verse 46 reads about David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob, or in other manuscripts read, God of Jacob. So I set you up last time with talking about textual criticism. That is, there are manuscripts that read one way and others that read another. And sometimes it's hard to say which one is accurate or which one is right. And let me just say, uh, before I argue for my point, is that there are two kinds of evidence. If you have hand-copied manuscripts, you see what date they are and what they belong to, whether it's a Some manuscripts are better than others, but in general, those who would have copied them, there are early manuscripts that read a certain way, and then sometimes you have readings that pop up out of nowhere, and you go, well, then it changes. Well, the, the thing that scholars, although this is a difficult one, all almost, almost unanimously agree that the early and more attested to reading is House of Jacob. But because it's difficult, you're like, how this this doesn't make sense. It sounds to me to be referring to God. It throws people off pretty mightily and they go, well, what's this mean? And so they try to explain how there's been an error early on in the manuscripts that we can't find earlier. I think this is an untenable position. And I recognize that other preachers who know the original languages and stuff can disagree with me. I'll tell you why I'm right and why it makes Stephen's point. He, I've been spending eight weeks on this text and I feel very convinced that Stephen here masterfully really captures the essence of his argument right here. So that's why I want to dwell on it here because it'll help you understand the whole point that he's making. Stephen captures the answer in, in a 
a phrase that everybody knows. Everybody knows God of Jacob. Everybody would have read that bunches and bunches of times in the Old Testament. And specifically, when you want to make your point and to catch people's attention, you might augment a phrase that everybody knows. Uh, so if I say it's like shooting fish in a Everybody knows what I'm going to say. You might change that last one. It's like shooting fish in a cup. And people go, oh, wait. And it throws you and it grabs your attention. That's what's going on here in this particular one. There's a literary term that we use called metonymy. Metonymy, M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y. M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y, metonymy. What is he doing? He's doing metonymy. This is a linguistic device. Here's a a definition. It's a figure of speech in which an object or an idea is referred to by the name of something closely associated with it as opposed to its name. So, um, (laughs) though Queen Elizabeth has died and uh, Charles has taken over, I might say, if I lived over there and I was employed by by British royalty, I might say, I serve the crown. Now, you don't think there's a crown on a pedestal and I go up and I serve it and I worship it or something like that. No, you understand. I, I serve the British government or I am an in, in attendant to this. That's using a symbol that stands for the whole thing. We'll see that twice in Isaiah, throne, footstool, even dwelling place. All three of those are being used in the same way. And likewise, what Stephen here is doing is saying in a really genius way, using a figure of speech to draw out the perpetual problem that Israel has. If you're familiar with David's story, you'll know that he asked to build a house for God. And God says, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. You're misunderstanding the point of the whole thing. And so to draw this out, he restates what David asks, namely that he wants to build uh, he, he wants to build a house for the house of Jacob. He wants to show that the Jews had mistakenly thought of the temple as the permanent situation. The final sort of thing. What makes the temple the temple? Is it the pretty stones? Is it the layout? No. What makes the temple is God's presence within it. That's why it's this huge event when the presence of God goes Ichabod and leaves the temple in Ezekiel. The God of Jacob is the house of Jacob. He is what the temple temple and the tabernacle is, the essential presence of God with his people. It is a heavenly reality. The stones don't give it its value. The layout doesn't give it its value. Ultimately, it's rather that it points to the place of worship for God's people. It's both the house of Israel. It's, it's Israel's house. That it's their formal place of worship. As you walk in the temple in that day before Christ's coming, you walk into the presence of God. 
And that's why, you're, as the high priest, he can only enter into the holiest of holy places once a year. And if he does so without the cleansing of sin, he dies. This is a seriously holy place because God dwells there. This is what brings the temple value. Though these people miss the point. They think that the stones or something else, they can keep the rituals and the ceremonies apart from the heart religion that it indicates, apart from the spiritual worship of God and think that that's all right. They had not abandoned sacrifices altogether. They had been keeping the ceremonies, yet they go out of the temple and think they've left God's presence and they can offer to Molech in their high places in the idol gods. This is what is said here. Verse 47, just for two, two quick points. Verse 47 confirms that it was a house for God, though God is the house in this metonymy. But in verse 48, it also denies the, the point, which is that the ultimate goal was for God to always be, as it were, captured in a house. I uh, want to point out <clears throat> one thing in regards to this quotation, but let me read it. He brings Isaiah to say, Isaiah preaches my point. You ready? Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or what is the place for my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? In the quote from Isaiah, though I wish I had more time, I just want you to hear what Isaiah is said in the midst of this quotation. There's a long section from verse six, really chapter 63 all the way through ver- chapter 66. And what happens here is really clear in distinguishing two types of people. You'll notice that what we have seen is we've seen a true Israel And right now, the church is almost all ethnic Israel. We see a true Israel in ethnic Israel, and we see a a false Israel, that is, unbelieving Israel, though they are ethnic Israel. And in this huge section of Isaiah, he quotes that one part that specifically refers to his point, but it also illuminates what constitutes true and unbelieving Israel. This is verse 2 and 3. All these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares Yahweh. Now listen to the two people that are distinguished first. But this is to the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now in contrast to that, here's the people that are being derided by Stephen. He who slaughters an ox, that is obedient to the ceremonies, is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, which is what was commanded in the Old Testament, right? Yeah, they keep that. But he is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. Here's the condemnation. These have chosen their own ways and their souls delight in their abominations. 
I will choose harsh treatment for them and I will bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Now, here is the line in which um, you should see all of the Christ ministry. Those who have come to Christ, this is what we see in John 8 especially, and I believe it's John 8, the blind man. Listen to this. Hear the word of Yahweh, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. You see, in this day, there is a new tabernacle. In this day of which Stephen reads, there are a people who, in one sense, confess the name of the Lord, but then go out and profane it by worshiping an idol. There is, in this day, those who hear the voice of God in his word, yet they are not obedient from the heart. And Stephen's point in the quotation is to show that there is a universalizing of the temple. It is meant to be a bigger reality that they see. It, It is not appropriate to worship in one place and then to go out and live a a completely different life as though you don't know Christ. The house of the Lord, ironically, the temple actually points to what God has built. He's built a cosmos. He is in heaven and earth is its footstool, meaning the whole earth is under its dominion. You're not safe from the wrath of the Lord. If you come in and feign worship before him and you go out into the rest of his footstool, the place where he is to be served and worshiped and live as though he's not Lord of that too. Calvin captures this wonderfully. I'm going to read a, a, a quote here so that you might, you might get the meaning as it relates to the whole cosmos, the whole universe, which is filled By assigning heaven for his habitation, this is quoting on the passage cited, he means that the majesty of God fills all things and is everywhere diffused, and that he is so far from being shut up in the temple that he is not shut up or confined in any place, whatever. The scripture often teaches that God is in heaven, not that he is shut up in it, But in order that we may raise our minds above the world and may not entertain any low or carnal or earthly conceptions of him. For the mere sight of heaven ought to carry us higher and transport us into admiration. We see that that what is pointed to is God's rule. Now, just think about the, the tabernacle for a second. What's in the center of the Holy of Holies? That is the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on it in the ark. What is that a symbol of? That is a symbol of God's perfect righteousness. Who can go in there without sacrifice? Nobody. Nobody. God's perfect righteousness is in a cordoned off area 
because we are so sinful, we can't go near. In fact, I don't have time to draw this out, but the point of him talking about the nations being dispossessed is because God's presence, which is so holy, can't even have Gentile nations, Gentile nations a part of it. So they're driven out of the presence of the land so that this place might not come under God's wrath because of sin. And here's the problem. They couldn't get the idolatry out of their own hearts. That's why they're deported beyond Babylon. They see in themselves or to see in themselves that there is the problem internal that needs to be dealt with. There's a righteousness of God that cannot be approached and they are so sinful. What will bridge the gap? Well, the only thing that does in two different ways is the atonements that are made, the sacrifice for sin that even allows the high priest once a year representing the people to God and God to the people makes a a bridge, a gap, opens up the temple veil as it were for a short period of time where God can dwell with his people and judgment is stayed for a little bit. But, But they are so close all the time from having that judgment come upon them because they do not have a final sacrifice. They don't have a solution. They can't overcome their rebellion. They can't overcome these things. And so... Stephen says in chastising them, he says, you stiff necked people. Listen to this. This is very important. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. I'll draw that out here in this last section. Whom you have now betrayed, that is Jesus, and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, I hope to tie this all together and hopefully in such a way that makes everything really, really clear. They themselves were like the Gentile nations. They, They had not gotten rid of the idolatry in their heart. And so... There is a a gap, something that needs to be accomplished further. They needed one to come down. You see, the temple, is it not the symbol of God? Who is the one who can fulfill these things? I hope you see, and we have this wonderful text beautifully put together. I think Stephen himself is drawing on the teaching of the apostles most likely in this section. John chapter 1 verse 14. The famous words talking about the the son of God, the word, Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally it's tabernacled. If if the word skene, tent, is there, he eskenosin. <laughs> he tabernacled. This is the verbal form of the word. He is the one who came and tented. The presence of God is in God himself. He is the house and we could not enter into that house. The house even had to leave Israel for a time. But God in his great mercy, the the house of Israel, the true tabernacle, 
comes down in Jesus Christ and he himself is our new and final tabernacle. The presence of God is fully manifest in Jesus, the Son, and in him alone. Although the imagery is different, I encourage you to go look at John chapter 10. Jesus is the door of the sheep. He is the entrance into God's kingdom, God's rule. That's, that's the meaning of the temple. God's presence, God's rule is king. Him as throne and footstool, experienced salvation, kingship. It's all tied together in the temple. It's in Jesus Christ. And now through him and him alone do we access the presence of God. That is the choice that they had before them in these moments. Is Christ the true temple? He is the house of Jacob. And what Jesus does is provide two essential things for us which we cannot earn. This is this is how he is man, but is superior and, and brings us to God. You see that the temple, if you think about it, is like, a, is like a portal to the heavenly places to God. He is the direct access to God. And we can't go in there unless we have somebody who can bring us in there through the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Jesus, as the true temple, provides these two essential things that we cannot earn. He is the perfect lawgiver, and he is the perfect law keeper. He, as it were, has the Ten Commandments written on his heart, and he lives it out completely. And he is also the high priest who's designated to bring forth a sacrifice for the people. He himself needs no sacrifice or needs no atonement made. He as the high priest enters into the holy of holies where God's righteousness is there. He himself as the righteous one. And what he does in his work on the cross is to offer up a sacrifice for sins. Now, you may or may not know this word. I want to give it to you, a phrase. And you can write this down, double imputation, double imputation. Most conservative Christians that I know of think of the work of Christ as a single imputation. That is, Christ goes to the cross and on the cross, what is imputed to Christ is your sinfulness. All the sins of God's people, that's how forgiveness comes because he's counted as a sinner And therefore, when he bears the wrath of God, you are forgiven. But we actually need more than that. We don't need a blank slate so as to try ourselves. If that happened, then your salvation would be based upon Christ's justification and in that sense in your works. But you need more than this. You you actually are so corrupt that even if you got a fresh start, you would still fail, you and I. We need the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We need the holiness of God for ourselves. We need the righteousness of God imputed to us, counted to us, so that by faith we might stand both not guilty, forgiven, and righteous. Jesus' whole life, 
is lived in perfect faithfulness so that he can earn for us something that we cannot earn. And what is that? So we think of, whenever we think of cross, we must also bring along with it resurrection. He died for us, but in his living for us, he earned a resurrection. I don't know if you've thought about this very much, but the resurrection itself, we talk about it as a vindication of his work. It is the, the uh, receiving of his wages. He earned a resurrected, immutable righteousness. Adam, in the beginning, was made in integrity. He was righteous before God, but he could fall from that righteousness, and thus he did. So all of us became corrupt. But Jesus comes and earns for us an immutable righteousness. The thing that he earns is just not not ongoing life, and someday there will be elect people that fall into sin and are damned. That's not what Jesus earned. He earned for us something that cannot be lost, a righteousness that is granted so that everybody who trusts in him will live one day, uh, when they die spiritually, uh, apart from their body, in an immutable state of righteousness. There will be no more sin for them. And then one day in the future, just like Christ is resurrected, because of Christ's merit, because of his work, his, he has paid what was due, namely a infinite righteousness that cannot be lost physically for you and I forever in heaven, granting to eat from the tree of life as it is pictured. This is what he earns. And so <clears throat> let me put it together here. What Christ does is he brings us near to God through forgiveness and then keeps us in the presence of God, never to be pushed out again. He brings us into the presence of God in such an amazing way that that we experience right now what's called eternal life. Everybody who trusts in Christ has a life that cannot be lost. It's eternal. But one day it will be immutably righteous. It will be fully perfected in body and soul. So Jesus, as the fulfillment of the tabernacle, not only (laughs) brings you into it, but brings it into you. So that all of us are called the, the church. We're called the true tabernacle. We are the temple. The temple is now being expanded and it's being expanded in America. It's being expanded in Asia and everywhere else. The, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle is going across the globe. And Isaiah holds out a promise in 11.9 that one day the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the final exhortation is to say that the tabernacle is now in, in a sense, movable. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we, corporately, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We actually are to go out into the world and to bring people near to Jesus because we bring the temple to them and we call them to enter into it. 
we are continuing the ministry of Christ in that way and fulfilling it. And this is really the turning point. They, they do not have ears to hear it because what it means to believe this means that I'm a sinner that needs to be reconciled to God through, through nothing else but Christ alone and faith alone, by God's grace alone. It means that I cannot earn my righteous standing before God. It's only on the basis of his righteousness, which is balm, which is sweet and wonderful for us. But for those who think very highly of themselves, for those who are trying to earn something before God, it, it will be the stench of death. The exhortation is to be the presence of God in the world. That is our duty, and that is Christ's glory, because this will be expanded as the waters cover the sea. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have brought the true temple, Jesus Christ, and it is in him that we have been reconciled to you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now we have even the down payment of the Spirit that we might bring the temple across the lands that people might enter into even, as it were, the Holy of Holies through the preaching of the gospel and confession and repentance in Christ Jesus alone. We thank you that this is granted to the world and that you are going to be successful in bringing it across the globe. We pray that, Lord, you do that in our our land, which looks bleak at this point. And we pray that you would cause this place to be an entrance into the kingdom of God under your rule and your reign. In Jesus' name, amen.